Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Santa Barbara, Montecito, uh, specifically California. And uh, sitting here now about, um, gosh, I think it's about four weeks, maybe post COVID. And, uh, you know, feeling better. I got to say, this thing is a kind of a beast, though. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's like there's sort of stages of the whole thing. You got you started out. I started out with sort of, you know, sick and downright scared that I, I was going to get, you know, get killed or something. And then, uh, you know, I started feeling better. And then you go through this phase of self-pity. Uh, and now, four weeks later, I am in another phase which I would call annoyance. I'm getting just really annoyed at how long it's taking me to just sort of get back to normal. I mean, I'm not sick, right? But, you know, I'm not, uh, I have this, uh, uh, I, I just kind of feel like I'm 80 years old or something, you know? I mean, no insult to 80-year-olds out there. My dad is uh, also 80 or 83. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, I'm just kind of uh, a little weak. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a guy who likes to hike a lot and do all this stuff, but um, it's just taken me a while to get back to that point. Uh, I will say that uh, last week I was telling you about the brain fog I was having. And fortunately, the brain part has kind of gone away. It's just the rest of my body now. So little by little, getting back and um, and that's where I'm at but at least my brain's back so I don't feel like I'm having as much trouble uh, you know with with these podcasts and that kind of thing although last week I, I was still having problems so I was canceling stuff and I was canceling interviews and I was canceling calls etc so this week uh, I just went back to the well and went back to look at you know a bunch of the questions that we have left it's I figured we do an ask Buck show. They're always popular. They're always good for learning. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. So when we come back, I'll be back uh, myself again with uh, one more episode of Ask Buck. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility, it protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.
Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And let me get started with these questions here. And some of them are written and some of them are uh, some of them are recorded. This one was actually an email, the first one, and I thought it was a good question I thought I would share with you. It's from Max. I think Max is local here. Max asked a question. The bonus depreciation advantages in a WF Velocity ATM fund are intriguing and my decision to invest is influenced in part by my ability to apply bonus depreciation to other investments. Okay, so he's talking about the ATM fund, WF Velocity ATM fund. If you're curious about that, go to WFVelocity.com. So he goes on to say, from your podcast and bonus depreciation related comments made by Tom Wheelwright uh, from this article, and he points out this article and he quotes, here's where it can apply to any real estate investment. Let's say you're renting the real estate or use the real estate in your business. As long as you bought it after September 27, 2017, you can use bonus depreciation for new or used property. That's a quote from Tom Wheelwright. Um, the potential savings are significant. For example, your client buys a fourplex for $1 million. Typically, as much as 30% of the price would qualify for bonus depreciation. This means they could end up with a $300,000 deduction the very first year and consider the fact that their down payment was in the neighborhood of 200000 Suddenly, real estate is a whole different animal as far as investing than it used to be. So anyway, that's a quote from Tom Wheelwright uh, that he uh, wrote here. And then he goes on, Max goes on to say, however, speaking with my CPA and reading the IRS guidelines, it does not seem bonus depreciation is applicable, applicable to the purchase of real estate at all since the MACRS depreciation table for real estate is greater than 20 years. Perhaps Tom is implying uh, bonus depreciation is applicable to improvements on the property and not the property purchase itself, question mark. And he says, I realize you're not able to provide tax or financial advice, but any guidance on this matter would be very helpful. So here's what I got to say about that. Okay, I had to include this question in this show because these kinds of things drive me absolutely crazy. And I'm not talking about your question, Max. It's your CPA's answer. And let me be clear. I'm not a CPA, and it's not legal for me to give tax advice. But when I hear about such incompetence on the side of the CPA, it makes me wonder if it should be legal for them to give you tax advice. Because uh, really, I mean, seriously, it has... Uh, these kinds of things piss me off so much. They were continuing to piss me off so much that I'm actually considering starting my own CPA firm. And I'm not kidding about that. Uh, listen, 
Obviously, my ire is not directed at the question, Max, and you know that well. We've had some back and forth in email. So let me tell you, though, as a non-tax professional, let me tell you all those people out there that Tom Wheelwright, my CPA, is right here. Bottom line is that the detail your CPA overlooked when giving you that information is the cost segregation analysis piece of this. So by your definition, the cost segregation analysis, of course, segregates your property into two types of property, right? You've got real property, which is, you know, real estate, the stuff you learn about if you get your real estate license, the the stuff that uh, that's sitting there that you can't pull off the ground and, and throw out the window. That's real property. But uh, there's another part of that property uh, that is segregated out in a cost segregation study, and that is chattel or personal property. And that is the stuff that you can pull out, right? You can pull out the shelves. You can pull out, you know, uh, anything, uh, you know, uh, that's not fixed. Uh, and after dozens, literally dozens of cost segregation analysis that I've been a part of, uh, from single family homes and multifamily properties ranging from a half million bucks all the way up to a hundred million dollars. The cost segregation analysis, at least in residential property, has been pretty consistent. And it's consistent with Tom's assessment of about 30% of the acquisition cost to chattel. So going back to Tom's uh, quote, yes, 30%. Uh, if you put down 20% on a property, uh, you were putting down 20% equity on a property and 30% of it was chattel and deductible in the first year, then you would, in theory, be able to deduct more than the actual equity you put in the deal, right? Now, the one part that Tom sometimes, um, you know, he doesn't really cover uh, when he talks about this uh, is he doesn't take into account that in most cases, when we're doing these big investment value-add properties, we're also budgeting a significant sum of money for capital expenditures, right? Value-add. So it might be ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a unit in some cases, depending on the value-add situation. So um, in that case, you could end up, you know, you have the equity that you need to bring to the deal, which might be, you know, 20%, 25%, whatever. But then you could end up having another 20% um, that needs to be raised on the equity side because of the capital expenditure, because of the value add. So the point I bring that up is because that's why you typically are probably seeing, you know, if you're in our investor club or, or, or whatnot, you're probably seeing K-1 losses on multifamily closer to 70%, all the way up to 100, you know, 106% we had one last year, uh, principal investment amounts, right? So uh, a couple more tips here. I know a guy, I know a guy for, uh, who does even smaller properties under a million who's great. He's been, a, I've had him on the show before briefly, and I'm happy to plug him. His name is David Brazil. Brazel, B-R-I-Z-E-L, look him up or, you know, sell him I sent you. If you can't find him, email me, bucketwealthformula.com and I'll connect you. But he's definitely very good and he's affordable and he does really good work on these properties where you don't think you can do a cost seg. He did my house uh, that I moved out of in Chicago that I'm still, that I still have. I can't seem 
to uh, sell. Anyway, finally, uh, with regard to this question, if your CPA is giving you horrible information, it is going to cost you a lot more money in the long term than paying for a decent one. So I'll put a plug in for Tom's, uh, you know, Tom's group, wealthability.com. Go get yourself a good CPA. Now, when you go to WealthAbility, you talk to somebody, you plug in, whatever you need to do, make sure you mention that you're part of our community when you do this. Why? Because Tom's a friend of mine. Tom is my CPA. And I guarantee you, he said this himself, you will get pushed to the proverbial front of the line uh, if they know you're one of our listeners, um, because I'm always on their case if I feel, if I hear about uh, a situation that I don't think is less than optimal. Um, and, you know, Tom does great, he's very responsive in that regard, but it's, it's, it's nice if you have, if you use the leverage of our, of our group. So just mention that you're part of our listening community. If you uh, go to wealthability.com, but do something, get yourself a competent CPA is going to save you so much money. And if they don't even know what a cost segregation analysis is, they don't know, you know, uh, the, the depreciation elements of this. I mean, gosh, good Lord, if you're dealing with real estate, you, you've got to, you've got to make a change. You're losing, you're hemorrhaging money. Uh, okay. So that's all I got on that. Okay. Next question is uh, from Jeffrey Haldeman. Here's a question. Hey Buck, first, I'd like to thank you for all that you're doing on Wealth Formula. I spent years going through the process that you've described. 401ks, IRAs.com bust followed by ups and downs of tech stocks, all much to my frustration until I came across concepts of whole life independent banking, what we call wealth formula banking, and syndicated real estate. And I've been reading and listening to everything I can find on the subjects and actually investing for the last three years. You are spot on with your storyline. And I swear, sometimes I feel like you're actually talking to me specifically. I am, Jeff. No, just kidding. I feel like I found an investing home on wealthformula.com. What I was looking for was a group with integrity, trustworthiness, and a very low threshold for BS. And I found it with your guidance. Please accept my heartfelt gratitude for that. But thank you for that, Jeff. Yes, very low threshold for BS is a good description of me. Um, he says, my question today is regarding the ATM opportunity. Again, he's talking about the WF ATM uh, Velocity Fund, which you can go to wfvelocity.com. He says, I expect some divestiture events next year and want to invest with WF Velocity Fund. And I was wondering what you see for the fund's run rate. Do you see another 5, 10, 15 years for this type of investment? One more thing. I'd love to hear a podcast on what to do with dry powder while one's going through the process of deploying it, which sometimes can take a while. Uh, where can one put it to be safe, maybe gain enough interest to keep up with inflation. Okay. So with regard to the ATM fund, I guess the question really is how long do you think the United States of America will continue using cash? This is sort of the question that really, I mean, defines that entire fund. After all, as long as we use cash, we need ATMs, right? So, you know, listen, I have invested quite a bit of money into WF Velocity ATM fund myself. So as an investor in the fund, let me tell you how I look at it. Okay, so it's a seven-year fund, right? If I'm able to use bonus depreciation, which I am, 
um, and, and use that to my advantage, my effective return of capital occurs at around three years because of the huge return I'm getting from that depreciation. Now, that means my risk, my risk is essentially off the table in three years and the rest is upside the last four years. That's the way I look at it. So as long as I believe that we will not be a cashless society in less than three or four years, I feel very comfortable with my investment. Now, let's look at the facts, okay? Let's look at the facts. The facts are that there is no current congressional legislation to eliminate cash. No one's talking about it. Some have pointed out that, hey, there's these rumors about research being conducted by the Federal Reserve, and they're looking into FedCoin and distributed ledger technology, and all of this you know, means the end of cash. Well, let me remind you of something, because I keep hearing about this. The U.S. does already have a digital currency. It's called the U.S. dollar, right? U.S. cash only makes up about 10% of money in circulation. So what's the whole FedCoin distributed ledger thing about then? Well... It's about improving technology that we have on 90% of the digital money that's out there that makes up this so-called U.S. dollar, right? So Jerome Paul himself, uh, you know, had said specifically that the U.S. is not looking to replace cash. He said the distributed ledger technology is something they're looking at maybe to improve technology, you know, wire transfers, all these things that crypto is really good at. And maybe uh, they don't talk about as much. Obviously, if there is a uh, if there is a distributed ledger, it makes transparency to the government extremely high. Right. In other words, you know, you 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 can't hide money on a distributed ledger. It's very difficult. So tracking money becomes a lot easier. Uh, for the government in that situation. But really, again, remember, 90% of the U.S. Uh, money, uh, the dollar, is already digital. So what we're really talking about there is making some digital, some improvements to that technology. That's what Jerome Powell says. That's what makes sense to me. As far as cash, listen, there has been a significant backlash in cities where cash has been, you know, effectively minimized. You know, some of these tech cities like San Francisco, uh, cash is the money of the underbanks. So not accepting it has been labeled racist by some. Listen, make no mistake, the elimination of cash, while it may happen in our lifetimes, you know, it, it's it's a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. It's a generational change and one that will have a lot of very, very strong opponents to it. Now, if there's a lot of very strong opponents to it, it makes up 10% of the money in the population. It's used by the poor. Who's going to make it their cause, right? I guess that's the question. Right now, nobody is. And uh, I guess that's, the, uh, that's, where we're, that's where we're starting. So with all that's going on out there right now, and all the things that Congress needs to focus on, do I really think that cash is in danger in the next seven years? No, I don't. But I especially don't think it's in danger in the next three or four years, which is where the risk uh, with my investments in ATMs are. So I would say, uh, as an investor, my philosophy is approach each year and ask yourself the same question. You know, three, four years. Really? It's going to happen? 
Well, right now, I don't see any reason to think of a cashless society being around the corner. I really don't. I don't see, I don't see it, um, you know, and so I'm not terribly worried about it. But listen, it's, it's something that we have to kind of, uh, you know, keep track of. And at the end of the day, just remember, it's a big deal. It really is a big deal. And so it's not going to happen that easily or anytime soon. Now, the other question that you had was about dry powder, where to keep it. Well, uh, I think the obvious thing that comes up in my mind is that whole wall formula banking concept again. It's sort of the most obvious answer, in my opinion. I mean, if you can get five, five and a half percent compounding, let it you know grow at a compounding rate and then borrow at a simple rate. Right now, these there are these banks uh, out there that are lending on these things at like 3%. Somebody even mentioned sub 3% on our uh, Wealth Formula Network call the other day. And so you've got the arbitrage of, you know, the five, five and a half versus 3%. But then you also have the arbitrage when you uh, of, of a compounding interest rate that continues to grow versus borrowing at a simple uh, interest rate. So it's really a pretty dramatic way to do things. Uh, we've talked about it on this show, you know, several times. You've got the compounding versus simple arbitrage on top of the nominal arbitrage. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, definitely go to wealthformulabanking.com. Watch the webinar on Wealth Formula Banking. But again, um, to me, that's sort of the most, the no-brainer in terms of where to keep your money and uh, while you're waiting to deploy. Uh, and it allows you, as I've said before, to invest the same money in two places at the same time. All right. Next question is from Todd. This is an audio question. Um, hello there, Buck. Uh, this is Todd Reeder. I'm a podiatrist from Wisconsin and member of the Investor Club. Um, just a question about Bitcoin. I uh, just wanted to maybe invest a very small percentage um, into Bitcoin. Um, I guess I know that there's more technical, way, technical ways with um, wallets and et cetera. I'm not too tech savvy. Uh, would would um, What's a what's a good and bad of the funds like GBTC? Uh, just wondering about that. So uh, just um, whatever uh, answer, whatever uh, advice you you could give would be great. Anyways, uh, thank you very much and keep up the good work. All right, Todd. Yeah. So I'll tell you what I told my dad. The easiest thing to do, in my opinion, is GBTC off of uh, New York Stock Exchange. Uh, GBTC is the Grayscope Bitcoin Trust. Um, there's also an Ethereum, uh, trust from Grayscale, which, uh, has a ticker to ETHE. Uh, of course you do pay a premium, uh, when you buy these things, but you also sell it at a premium when you get out. So in theory, it really shouldn't matter as you're focusing on the Delta between when you buy and sell. I think that's probably the simplest thing. The other consideration is we've talked about recently, again, is the Bitwise funds, um, uh, unfortunately, for those of uh, you who listened to our interviews um, a year or two ago, who invest in Bitwise, uh, some of the Bitwise funds, one of the huge benefits was that some of those uh, who invested in, in, in those funds, um, they had this option after they bought, after they held for a year uh, to sell their shares into a, a trust similar to the one that the Bitcoin, uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And when they did, talk about a premium, it was like a crazy multiple uh, they were getting. You know, I, I, I 
want to say it was like 20 times or something like what they, um, what the actual value was that they could sell at. Anyway, I can't say that'll happen again, but certainly something to think about. Uh, it could certainly happen again. So may consider that. Obviously, that's going to be for somebody who invests a little bit more money. I don't know what their minimums are now. I think they were like 50000 back a while back, but they might have gotten a little higher. So anyway, you can check that out. Obviously, I don't, you know, it's not a recommendation uh, from me uh, or anything like that. And I have nothing to do with Bitwise. I wish I did because they're making a ton of money, I'm sure. But uh, but yeah, that's a that's another consideration as well. All right, next question. Uh, Bimal uh, asks, Buck, I've invested in Western Wealth. Thanks to Investor Club, I agree with the concept of uh, infinite return model. However, the topic of prepayment penalties never addressed. Can you focus on that? Your next Ask Buck podcast. Uh, I'm guessing returns have been so good uh, the last decade with a substantial prepayment penalty. Even with a substantial prepayment penalty, I'm really curious about this. Yeah, I mean, listen, here's the deal. So, you know, we can't really talk too much about this. Uh, you know, we're not going to talk specifically about, you know, Western Wealth Capital deals or anything like that. Um, but listen, the uh, all the prepayment stuff is baked in uh, in those pro formas. It helps that generally uh, we're using floating rates um, in most of these. So prepayments generally are not that bad. Um, prepayment penalties are a much bigger problem in general when you're locked into a higher rate loan and all of a sudden rates are really low like they are now. And so, you know, we, we, uh, we have a situation on sort of like that on one of our properties, which we bought a couple of years ago and, uh, the rates were locked in and they were locked in a little bit, you know, higher, uh, than, uh, than, than, you know, than we'd like them to be now because the rates are so low. Uh, the property itself in the, in the interim is absolutely, you know, is just crushing it. Um, it. And the way, of course, that, you know, our models work in, in a situation like this, we probably would be looking to potentially sell and, uh, you know, reap in a, a ton of profit from that property. But in that situation, the prepayment would be, uh, it would be unattractive. Let's put it that way. So, uh, rather than do that, we're just going to plan on holding for another year, year and a half. But most of most of these are are floating, um, and they can be fixed at any time, and that really uh, mitigates the issue of uh, prepayment. Hi, Buck. My name is Ashley. Um, I was just checking in with you to see. We received um, an inheritance of about $400,000, and we are trying to figure out the best way to invest it. Um, we thought probably doing rentals, and my main question is um, if I should buy one house with cash or if I should do a mortgage and buy several houses um, that cash flow. So, if you can let us know what you think is maybe the best way to go, that'd be great. Thanks. Ashley, thanks for the question. Obviously, um, you know, I don't want to get into a situation where I'm giving you financial advice, but let me tell you what I would do. Uh, if it were me and I had uh, an inheritance of $400,000, um, first and foremost, I would be looking uh, to figure out how to make that $400,000 go as far as it possibly could. So if it's me, 
I'm not taking four hundred thousand dollars and plopping it into one property for cash and just cash flowing, you know, uh, thirty thousand uh, dollars a month. And you know, it just to me that's not probably the most efficient use of that capital. I um, am a big fan, as you know, of leverage. So what I would do personally is take that four hundred thousand dollars. And make sure that whatever I do, I'm using a significant amount of, of, of leverage, whether that's, you know, one property for $400,000 and a down payment and, you know, uh, it's a $2 million property, uh, or, you know, if you're going to do multiple smaller properties. Um, so the question is, would you do one larger property or one smaller property? Uh, for my money at that point, at that level, I would personally probably do a, a, a slightly larger uh, single property because I don't like the pain of having multiple uh, uh, smaller properties. And the, the scale issue uh, is, is, a, is an important one. Uh, I I think I would be focused on getting as many doors as possible, and obviously it depends a little bit on where you live. But two million dollars probably get you more doors under one. Uh, you know, if you're if you've got four hundred thousand dollars and and you've got a two a two two million dollar total property, you're leveraging one point six million or something like that. For me personally, I'm going to want more doors uh, under one roof than I would uh, uh, you know getting multiple smaller properties. Now, that does also come with a warning, a little bit of a caveat, shall we say. And that is that when you do that, uh, you are spending that $400,000 uh, in, uh, you know, on one property. Uh, that is assuming that you are going to do a good job of running that property, right? So that's the other thing to consider, right? You could... You could lose that four hundred thousand dollars if you don't know what you're doing, but you know uh, you could also lose that four hundred thousand dollars if you don't know what you're doing with four different properties, right? The reason I bring that up is part of the question ends up ultimately being whether you should buy your own properties or you should potentially use that money to invest with a known quantity, uh, you know, syndicator. Uh, you know, an operator, somebody who does this for a living. Now, I bring that up uh, not because that's, you know, a lot of what I do uh, for accredited investors, um, but, you know, in my experience, the challenge for busy people sometimes is the, you know, they love the idea of real estate. They love the idea of what real estate does for them. But the reality is they don't love real estate. They don't love being like a landlord or an asset manager or whatever. So in that situation, one thing to consider is $400,000 probably could get you exposure to a lot of doors if you use it in the, in, in the context of a you know, real estate syndication, uh, as long as you know and trust and, uh, and feel good about the jockey and the operator. Now, some people are going to say, well, you know, I'm probably going to make more money if I'm uh, investing on my own rather than investing as a limited partner in a syndication. But, uh, and frankly, I used to think the same thing. But it has been my experience uh, in working with really top-notch uh, syndicators 
that generally speaking, you tend to do either better or just as good uh, and you don't have the work and you feel like you've got, you know, somebody with uh, experience and time and a full-time operator on your hands watching over the assets that you own. So anyway, uh, that the, the point I bring up here is I think that's the real question that you've got. You've got, okay, do I, do I want to you know, invest this in my own uh, properties and become a landlord, or do I want to spend the time uh, and money to potentially, um, in, in the situation, you spend the time to potentially find you know, a good operator? And with $400,000, uh, assuming you're an accredited investor, because if you're not, then it becomes really difficult to find a good, good operator. But if you've got that kind of money, you could potentially put $50,000 in, you know, eight different deals and have exposure to, you know, you know, 2,400 doors across the country. And so from a risk mitigation standpoint, that is very attractive as opposed to having like, you know, 10 doors that you manage yourself. Obviously, you can tell where my bias is, and I don't, I'm not saying that uh, because of anything other than my own personal experience. I mean, having professional operations, professional operator, uh, I think that most of the people who are experienced in our uh, credit investor group realize that you know there's a lot to be said for handing your money to somebody who knows what they're doing and they're good at it. So not sure that that necessarily answers your question. It probably just gives you a lot more questions to think about, but, uh, but hopefully it helps. All right. I think I have one more question. Hi, Buck. It's uh, Serena Voss. Um, wanted again, thank you for everything that you and your team does uh, with Wealth Formula. Um, myself, my family, and I'm sure all of your listeners and uh, members appreciate it. My question has to deal with the privatization efforts of uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, whether or not those will continue under the Biden administration is a little bit of a question mark. But just in general, I wanted to ask how uh, moves to privatize uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will affect uh, loans for many of the multifamily opportunities that uh, we have been doing uh, with Wealth Formula Network on the one hand, but just in general on the others. On the other hand, um, will it make it easier or harder uh, to get this agency debt? Um, just wanted to hear your thoughts. And then correspondingly, um, depending on whether it's easier or harder to get this type of debt, whether that would contribute to asset price inflation or whether it would actually uh, depress asset prices. Again, uh, always value your insight. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, Srinivas always asks the tough questions and the good questions. So bottom line is that, um, it is a, it's a good question, but you know, I'll tell you a couple things first. Um, you know, most people that I'm talking to in the multifamily space about this kind of thing, don't think it's going to happen. They don't think it's going to happen this year at least, but if it happens, what does it mean? Well, I think, I think, the impact on it, um, you know, for the most part is it's probably going to affect, uh, you know, home buyers a little bit more, particularly the, you know, the down uh, downstream uh, home buyer 
that relies on some of the you know FHA uh, guarantees and things like that. Um, but how does it affect us as you know agency debt with larger assets and multifamily? Well, in theory, what would happen is that it would just continue to sort of potentially contract the uh, underwriting of uh, you know of real estate. So how does that affect us if there's uh, uh, you know some more strict underwriting criteria? Well, we may not get as much loan to value, for example, on a particular uh, opportunity where you know it could be that instead of getting you know seventy five percent loan to value, you know maybe we get seventy eight percent loan to or, I'm sorry maybe a seventy two percent loan to value or something like that. Or I think you're going to see a particular impact in uh, uh, for um, you know tertiary markets that already are kind of squeezed for you know those kind of LTVs and that kind of thing. I think one of the major advantages that we have, uh, certainly in terms of you know our um, portfolio and operators and that kind of thing is uh, we primarily deal in in very strong markets, you know, DFW, uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale, et cetera. Those markets are going to be continue to be easier to get the debt. Uh, and also, you know, part of the tightening process will be tightening the underwriting on the actual uh, operators themselves. And, and in, in our case, actually helps us because we've got you know, a few billion dollars uh, of, of real estate under uh, management. So it certainly doesn't uh, doesn't hurt to already have these kinds of advantages. And that gives us advantages potentially that can offset some of the disadvantages of the underwriting because essentially, um, you know, we can potentially see a situation where we are, uh, you know, we're eliminating uh, some of the competition from being able to compete. Um, of course, that's... Uh, uh, that's a sunny uh, look at this whole thing. But overall, I would say that I don't think that net net, it's going to have a huge impact on what we do. You know, at the end of the day, yeah, could it could it lessen our loan to value? Could it make it a little bit harder, you know, to get um, interest only for three years like we're getting on a lot of deals? Yeah, I think it could tighten things up. But overall, I mean, it, I, I don't think the impact is going to be significant, and I don't think it's going to happen this year. So hopefully, I'm right about that, but we'll see. But no, I don't think uh, I don't think privatization of Fannie Freddie is Armageddon uh, by any by any stretch of the imagination. Especially when I think we have such a huge potential bull market uh, in 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 multifamily real estate coming over the next five to seven years. So. Hopefully I'm right, and hopefully that uh, that gives you some sense of where uh, at least I'm thinking on this question is. Um, anyway, that's uh, that's about all we have today for questions, and we'll take a break for a moment, and we will uh, come back and and wrap it all up. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that uh, that episode of Ask Buck, uh, and hopefully. You don't think that I am still having problems with my brain. I think I answered things uh, fairly regularly there, and and uh, I took some coughing breaks that have been uh, edited out, but overall it went just fine. I think the, um, you know, 
when I when I think about the shows that we've had, and I think about the questions we are, are continuing to have on the Ask Buck, I think the um, I think the overall feeling out there is one of uh, concern about the new administration, about what's going to happen with tax law, what's going to happen with, you know, you know, the questions about privatization of Freddie and Fannie. And, you know, bottom line is that's just kind of an ongoing things, right? Things are, are constantly in flux and we have to adjust. Um, but, you know, one thought I'll leave you with right now is that as of today, which is, you know, still the end of January 2021, no law has changed, you know, everything's the same bonus depreciation, uh, you know, all of the, uh, you know, all of the Fannie and Freddie are still what they are and the underwriting guidelines are what they are. This could all change, you know, later on this year or next year or whatever. But I think the moral of the story is it hasn't yet. So I think, uh, I think if I have any advice for you, it's to make sure that you're not sitting on the sidelines too much. Uh, make sure that you are deploying capital, um, you know, early in the year. Uh, you know, a lot of people like to wait till the end and then start to collect their bonus depreciation. You heard Tom Wheelwright on the show recently, and it and it could be the case that, you know, we have bonus and it gets wiped out with some legislation. And it could be the case that the bonus will only, you know, work for you uh, up until that point where that legislation is introduced. So if that's the case... It stands to reason that you start making, you know, investments he heavier in the year and, uh, and and hope for the best. So that would be my suggestion. I definitely would not get into the paralysis of analysis situation and worry about what's going to happen later on in the year, because right now it's everything's the same. So with that, I will leave you. Uh, this is uh, Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.